You are listening to the Campus Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. Each Wednesday on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, I welcome a new guest from Queen's University to discuss news, issues, upcoming events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to Campus Beat. I'm Dinah Jansen. On March 22, 2021, Queen's University announced that two researchers, Peter Davies and Laurie Graham, of the Department of Biomedical and Molecular Sciences here at Queen's, have published a study in the journal Trends in Genetics reporting a gene that crossed the species barrier. The study, Horizontal Gene Transfer in Vertebrates, a fishy tail, looks specifically at new evidence proving the direction of transfer was from herring to smelt. This research shows a unique example of direct vertebrate-to-vertebrate transmission of a useful gene, analogous to genetic modifications that can be carried out in a laboratory. How did the gene jump the species barrier? Well, today we are joined by Peter Davies and Lori Graham, who are in the virtual studio to tell us all about their research, Horizontal Gene Transfer in Vertebrates, a fishy tail. Welcome, Peter and Lori. Thank you for having us on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Okay, so I'm really excited to talk to you about your article uh, that you've recently published. I'd like to hear more first about yourselves and your research and teaching in DBMS here at Queen's University. Okay, I'm uh, actually working for Peter Davies. I'm his research associate, and I also hold an adjunct position in the department. And I've been doing this for over 20 years. And most of my teaching is actually in the laboratory because we, um, um, we have a fair number of fourth year students who come into the lab to do their thesis projects. So I instruct those. And also when we have graduate students come in, I usually mentor them at the uh, beginning of their research projects uh, until they can manage to do independent research on their own. Um, I'm also a guest Yeah, I also guest lecture in a variety of uh, undergraduate and graduate courses. Thank you so much for sharing. And how about you, Peter? Oh, well, I'm a biochemist by training and I'm very uh, involved in in research. I'm actually a Canada research chair, so I get to spend probably most of my my time doing research. Uh, This year, I've I've taught a graduate course in uh, proteins and I'm co-teaching a fourth year course um, a tutorial seminar course with, with um, honest uh, biochemists. What inspired your research and teaching interests? Why do you do what it is that you do? Well, well I've been interested in, in proteins for a long time. And um, I had a colleague oh, many, many years ago who got me interested in antifreeze proteins. Um, and and uh, it's been a fascinating uh, field of study, and, and, and we're still studying these antifreeze proteins. There's a lot to, to, to learn about them. Thank you so much. Laurie, how about you? What inspires your research and teaching interests? Uh, I think from the time I was, uh, you know, knee-high to a grasshopper, I've been interested in science. My hobbies are science. My passions are science. It's, it's just been something that I've been pursuing for my entire life. And I actually started out in physics, but then I took a genetics course and I was hooked. And that led me into uh, wanting to study more and more about the evolution of organisms. So I think uh, from a work perspective, evolution is one of my main interests. And I'm also very interested in 
how that uh, ties into the ways in which proteins um, function. How do they do their jobs? Oh, fascinating. Oh, I can't wait to learn more with the both of you today. Thank you so much. So now let's hear more about your recent work, Horizontal Gene Transfer for Invertebrates, A Fishy Tail. But before we climb right into the nitty gritty, let's start with the basics. What are antifreeze proteins in fish and how and why are they studied? Okay, well, maybe I'll start. Um, they're not only found in fish, they're actually found throughout the entire tree of life. But the really strange thing about antifreeze proteins is that there's so many different kinds of proteins that are doing the same job. So they're not all related to each other. They can have very different structures, very different sequences. Okay. And we found them in things uh, such as bacteria, plants, fish, insects, and a variety of others. So they're, they're, they're basically spread throughout the tree of life. Um, any organism that's at risk of freezing may in fact make one of these proteins. Um, what they do, what they all have in common is that they bind to the surface of ice crystals. And by doing this, they lower the freezing point of the, the, the solution. Hmm. So normally if you have an ice, uh, um, ice crystal in solution and you cool it, the, it's just gonna start to freeze. But the antifreeze proteins latch onto the crystal and they stop it from growing even if the temperature decreases. So that stops many organisms from freezing to death. So, so it's almost a, more of a blocker as opposed to a destroyer. Exactly, it is a blocker. <laughs> And for fish in particular, this is crucial because believe it or not, their blood is about as salty as ours and not nearly as salty as the, um, as the ocean water. So ocean water freezes a, uh, a little over a degree below what the fish blood freezes at. So if they don't have this protection, if they're swimming around in a sea, in an icy sea, then they're definitely at risk of freezing solid. Fascinating. Thank you so much. So let's dig a little deeper into uh, why these proteins are researched and how the research is done. Peter, can we hear from you? Sure. Um, yeah, so th this idea of being able to stop an ice crystal from growing uh, as Laurie has said, is really important to the survival of, of many organisms in, in these um, cold temperatures. So temperate regions, uh, high altitudes, Arctic and Antarctic, uh, the, the, the life forms that are there are really dependent, uh, many of them, on, on having antifreeze proteins. And if they didn't, there'd be fewer species, there'd be less uh, diversity in those uh, ecosystems. Mm-hmm. And, and then there's a, a, a lot of potential applications of, of these uh, proteins. Uh, so for example, for, for many years, uh, uh, Unilever was interested in getting antifreeze proteins to put in ice cream because when you put the ice cream in the freezer over a period of time, the, the ice can form larger and larger crystals. So it's called recrystallization. Mm -hmm. and, and then it becomes um, a little crunchier, not as smooth as, as, as you'd like, perhaps. And so for, for a while, they were putting fish antifreeze proteins in, in ice cream. And, and so you can say, well, that's a, a kind of trivial thing. But 
it just illustrates uh, one of the many applications that, that antifreeze uh, proteins uh, have. Well, a very practical day, everyday <laughs> one. Um, how many people eat ice cream <laughs> regularly? I, I had no idea we would find that ingredient in ice cream, but now I know. Okay. Well, thank you so much. This is really fascinating. So now let's hear more about the specific fish that you've been studying as well. I understand that, in fact, some of the research that you have been doing has arisen from discoveries made about a decade ago that discovered similarities between these antifreeze proteins, uh, protein genes of herring and a fish called smelt. Uh, let's hear more about how that inspired your current research. Yeah, the, um, the uh, particular type of protein that's found in herring and smelt is also found in another fish called the sea raven and its relative, the poacher. And the interesting thing about that is that there are other fish that are more closely related to smelt or to the sea raven that make completely different kinds of antifreeze proteins. So this seemed rather strange to us. And also the herring and the smelt last shared a common ancestor or they diverged about 250 million years ago. And this is before the dinosaurs even started roaming the earth. So mm -hmm. that's, you know, that's a very long time. And we couldn't figure out why do these two fish that, you know, are so separated in time, why are they making the same kind of antifreeze protein? But all of these other fish are making different types and some of them that are, you know, much more closely related to these fish. Mm -hmm. um, so that was sort of the first inconsistency, but it wasn't until we actually started cloning the genes, looking at the actual sequence of the DNA, that we got a clue that something very strange was going on. So when we sequenced both the herring and the smelt genes, we noticed that they were very, very similar. But what was even stranger is that genes contain different segments. Some segments call, called exons actually code for the proteins. They're the, they have the instructions for how the protein is to be made. But mm -hmm. these are interrupted by other pieces of DNA called introns. And when you make a, the, the copy from the DNA, these introns are actually cut out of the RNA before you make the protein. And what we noticed was some of these were up to 97% identical between the herring and the smelt. And we said, how in the world could two genes have these, you know, sort of useless bits of uh, DNA, these introns that are so identical after 250 million years? So we compared that to another gene. And what we found is while the exons that that make the protein parts were still similar, the introns were completely different. So that suggested to us that these genes could not have come from that common ancestor. They had to be similar for some other reason. And what we figured was this was an example of horizontal gene transfer. It's, it doesn't involve reproduction. What it is, is when a piece of DNA from one organism gets into another species, and integrates and is passed on. And that, um, you know, that happens a lot in bacteria. You hear about them passing on genes for antibiotic resistance. And DNA uh, is swapped pretty frequently between bacterial species. But mm -hmm. when we get to 
complex organisms like vertebrates, this is not something that's happening all the time. In fact, it's extremely rare. Um, This is the only case we know of where a regular gene has gone from one vertebrate to another. But not through reproduction. No. Um, these, These fish are completely incompatible. In fact, if you took the nucleus out of a fertilized egg of mm-hmm. one species and put it into the, uh, the cytoplasm of the second species, it wouldn't even develop. They're so incompatible that there's no way they could have ever reproduced. So that DNA had to go via another mechanism. And do we know what that other mechanism is? Not conclusively. But okay. we, what are your theories? Yeah, we have an or idea. Can you tell us that yet? <laughs> yes, we can. We actually back in, in our first paper, the reviewer sort of said, you know, come up with an idea of how this might have happened. So we delved into the literature and we found out that people in laboratories um, were actually making transgenic animals such as pigs or fish by a process called sperm sperm mediated uh, gene transfer. Okay. So what you do is you take the sperm and you incubate it with DNA and that DNA will actually bind to the sperm. And then when the sperm fertilizes the egg, the DNA is transported into the egg. And every once in a while, that piece of DNA will get integrated into the chromosome and then it can be transmitted to subsequent generations and you've generated yourself a transgenic organism. Okay. So this is, you know, this is like a GMO. And um, this has been done with, as I mentioned, fish and pigs. So we know in the laboratory it can be done. And when we look at how these uh, fish reproduce, the females will lay their eggs in the ocean um, with herring, it's either on vegetation or on the um, seafloor near, near to the coastline. And then the males will come along and uh, fertilize them. And when you, you know, when you fly over areas where herring are spawning, the ocean along the coast actually looks milky white. There's mm. that much sperm that is being released into the water. So when that sperm has been floating around for a while, it sort of breaks open and then the DNA comes out. And what we think is that maybe there was some kind of a smelt that was reproducing nearby and that DNA then bound to that sperm and then entered into uh, a smelt egg. And I should say that this probably happened around 16 to 20 million years ago. Okay. So a, a long time ago, it wasn't something that happened uh, uh, last year. Or no, no. It, um, <laughs> yeah, it happened. Um, the earth began to cool. It was originally uh, around 55 million years ago, extremely warm. And even the deep oceans, which are now only a couple of degrees above uh, the freezing point. Um, back then, the model suggests the deep oceans were at about 14 degrees Celsius. And they were so warm that even during the long Arctic winter when there was no, um, you know, no sunlight, the oceans probably didn't freeze at all. Wow. So fish had absolutely no need for antifreeze proteins and they really didn't start to um, evolve them until the earth began to cool. And that sort of kicked in about 30 million years ago. Now, 
I'm kind of curious too. You've talked about what it is that you're, what it is that you've been researching and, and how you've done the research, but can we, can we go right into what the lab work looks like too, just for some of our listeners out there who aren't scientists and have never been inside a lab? What does the day-to-day look like in terms of the collection of your samples, uh, analyzing the data, uh, what kind of equipment are you working with, that kind of stuff? Yeah, Um, that's interesting. Since uh, the first paper in 2008 up till now, the technologies have changed completely. So a whole new learning process almost year year by year for your team. Yeah, so um, we would have never, you know, we're kind of, we're in Ontario, we're not next to the coast. So we would have been shipped uh, samples from our collaborators out on the East Coast. And so mm-hmm. um, what I would start with was would be a frozen piece of, um, of say smelt tissue that arrived in, uh, you know, by FedEx. And then I would mm-hmm. take that and I would uh, spend, uh, you know, a few days extracting the DNA. Uh, after that, I would take these things called primers, little pieces of DNA, and I would do this process of gene amplification. Uh, it's called polymerase chain reaction. And I amplified um, up copies of the genes that I was interested in. So I did this for herring, I did this for smelt, and then I started comparing them. Um, oh, and so to sequence, you know, after we get the DNA, we send it off to a sequencing service. And we used to sequence ourselves in the lab many, many years ago, but now we don't do that anymore. There are people who we pay to do that for us and they're very efficient and they give us very high quality data. So they would send it back. And then that's when I sit on the computer day after day, you know, analyzing the data, comparing the gene sequences, generating the figures, writing the paper. And so a lot of the work that we do actually involves Um, data analysis. Um, In the next paper that I worked on, we actually did a process um, where, well, our collaborators collected blood. They sent that to a company, which then built us uh, what we call a library, which was um, then screened to find big pieces of DNA that had the antifreeze gene on it. And then that was sent off to another facility in Montreal um, for sequencing, for DNA Mm. sequencing, because it was a very big piece of DNA. So we needed a specialized sequencing service. So then I would remotely, they would generate the data and then I remotely access the data and analyze it. So nowadays, a lot of the research that's done is it's sort of very collaborational. We use various services, it's, uh, it's not like it was, you know, 50 years ago. <laughs> Indeed. It, it, it's, yeah, it's an interesting mixture, though, of, of doing some practical work at the bench and then doing a lot of uh, computational work that we call bioinformatics. Okay. Um, and, and, of course, nowadays, more and more uh, organisms are having their genome sequenced. And, and the big breakthrough in the most recent uh, paper was uh, when the, the herring, uh, Atlantic herring genome was uh, sequenced by a group in uh, Sweden. Is that right, uh, yes. Laurie? Yeah, it was overseen by a Swedish group. Yeah, and that was deposited in a public database. And so Laurie was able to uh, analyze this, put 
put together the, the, the pieces that she was interested in and then realized that, yes, you know, we have uh, watertight evidence that the gene has actually gone from, from the herring at some point in the past in, into the uh, smelt. So as I say, it's, it's, it's a combination of um, practical work at the bench um, and, and, and doing a lot of bioinformatic uh, computer work. All right. So with that in mind, then moving forward, what happens with the research uh, and its implications? Uh, perhaps what's going to happen next in terms of your field and what research you'll be moving or moving forward on now that you've made these discoveries, what happens next? And then maybe we can also talk about the practical implications on the on the day-to-day -day level too. We we talked about ice cream before, but are there other practical applications that we that this learning might contribute to uh, that lay yeah. people would otherwise enjoy on a day-to-day -day basis, if you will, or use? Yeah. So so maybe I'll I'll just say that um, having seen this uh, example of, of the gene. Um, basically jumping from, from herring to uh, mm -hmm. smelt. Um, what, what Laurie found out from looking at the herring genome is that the gene didn't actually originate in, in the uh, ancestors of, of the herring, but it's come from another species of fish. So we're, we're on hot on the trail to find out which species of fish that donated the, the, the gene to the herring in, in the first place. And so this, what's probably a very rare event has, has actually happened twice uh, for the mm -hmm. herring. Once to receive the gene and then once to give a copy of, of the gene to, to, to the smelt. And, and so that, that's, you know, it, it's a rare event, but it's made us think that actually uh, if we were to look at fish, we'll probably see other examples of lateral gene transfer. And, and so we're going to start looking for these. We have a few uh, ideas in, in mind. I'm intrigued by this idea that this herring seems to be like the hub of gene transfer. <laughs> Happy to accept genes from yeah. something else, presumably another fish, <laughs> and then pass it yeah. along. It'd be interesting to see if the herring is able to uh, accomplish that gene yeah. transfer with other fish too, but how many of those other fish are out there to to do that testing with? Who knows? <laughs> well, you. It's a bit like it's a bit like uh, lightning striking twice, actually. Really fascinating. Really fascinating. I wanted to add. I wanted to add something about the most recent paper to sort of highlight why that one is so important. Um, what we found out when you know, we were able to access the genome sequence was that the herring has eight copies of this gene. And you know, after it got the gene, little bits of um, jumping genes that are herring specific jumped into the gene, three pieces in particular. And when the gene was transferred from herring to smelt, these three little bits of DNA were carried along with it. And they're, all, they're like a, um, a little signature saying we were in the herring and now we're in the smelt. And the only place you find these segments of DNA, which are present hundreds or thousands of times in the herring all throughout the chromosomes, the only place you find them in the smelt is in the one gene. That's the antifreeze gene. So that's like a smoking gun that says this gene has come from herring to smelt. That's the only way it could have picked up these three 
extra pieces of DNA that are inserted into the gene. Thank you so much. I feel like I've learned quite a lot in a very short amount of time. And thank you for sharing in terms that many of us who are non-scientists can understand too. It's really great to be able to connect with the research that folks are doing at the university. Appreciate your time. and Yeah, we really do try. It, it is hard for us to, you know, because we talk to our scientific colleagues so often, it's hard for us to remember what it's like if you don't have, you know, to try to understand this, if you don't have a background you know, in the field. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. So for those of us who might be interested in reading more, where can we find the article itself? Well, it's in a, a journal called Trends in Genetics, and it's in the uh, March uh, issue. And uh, we have paid for open access. So anybody in the world can uh, find this uh, online now. If you If you go to the Trends in Genetics uh, website, uh, you, you'll have access to, to this article. So you don't need to have access through Queen's University no, libraries. No. You can read it freely online. Absolutely. That's amazing. Yeah. Th thank you so much. Anything else to add before we close today, Peter or Lori? Um, well, I just uh, want to thank our, our sponsors, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research for funding this research. I mean, we're really grateful to them. It's all taxpayers' money and um, we try to spend it wisely. <laughs> and thank you for your interest in, 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 in our work. Absolutely. Anything to add, Laurie? Uh, no, I think that uh, pretty much covers it. Thank you for uh, speaking to us today. Absolutely. Well, thank you both very much for joining us today here on Campus Beat to talk about your study, Horizontal Gene Transfer in Vertebrates, a Fishy Tale. We've learned a lot, and I look forward to chatting with you in the future about your upcoming research. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.